Second Peter chapter three, beginning in verse eight. Peter writes, but beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. As we've been studying through the little epistle of Second Peter, when we took our little detour back in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, we remembered that often the identity of a thing can be determined by its behavior. Dogs by what they eat. Pigs by how they bathe. And sheep, whether or not they're in their, the shepherd's arms. Sheep find themselves in the arms of a loving shepherd. And in chapter 3, four times the heart of Peter, the shepherd Peter, will declare in chapter 3, the beloved. In verses 1 through 7, he basically says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, but beloved, be not ignorant, verses 8 through 10. Beloved, be diligent, verses 11 through 14. And beloved, beware, he'll issue the warning in verses 15 through 18. In every generation, faithful saints have clung to the promise of Christ's return. And in every generation, scoffers, it says, walking after their own lusts, have said, where is the promise of his coming in verse 4? Peter will answer their question, exposing the scoffers' ignorance and their character and their doom. As a matter of fact, the same people who question Jesus Christ's coming almost invariably deny his atoning death. His miraculous resurrection, his ascension into heaven, skeptics and scoffers sneer at the idea that a Jesus could return, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, that he's going to come back to judge sin. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear the Lord has appointed a specific date, a date of judgment. So how do we answer the critic? How do we address the skeptic? How do we respond to the unbeliever? How do we justify our patience and our hope as we await the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Even some Christians might ask, well, Lord, why are you waiting? Why is there a delay? And the answer is found in the character of God. And the purposes of God. Peter points this out in this passage. And he specifically appeals to three things. Number one, that God's view of time is different from our view in verse 8. Number two, that God's love and God's grace provide the greatest explanation of the delay in verse 9. 
And number three, that the day of judgment, far from being some myth or legend, will see full and final fruition at exactly the right moment in verse 10. One of the things that I have to completely remind you of is that Peter is writing these things not in preparation of an end-time seminar. Peter is preparing to die. He will die soon. And the first recipients of this letter will experience hardship and trial and persecution and imprisonment and many will experience death. And Peter has been given specific warnings in the first seven verses presenting and discussing the critic and the skeptics taunting question in verse four, describing their self-centered character and their willful ignorance of the truth. And then he turns a corner and begins to provide encouragement for those who love the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the person who wakes up every morning and says, today, maybe this day my beloved will come. And so he encourages us to keep looking up. Peter reminds us, in the third chapter, that God's word is true in verses 1 through 4. That God's work is consistent in verses 5 through 7. And that God's will is merciful in verses 8 through 10. And so we begin with a fresh look at how God looks at time. Look again in verse 8. But, beloved, that's you, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so it's important to ask the question, well, how does God reckon time? And some have taken this text and somehow literally juxtaposed it to mean that a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And they engage in all kinds of in time weirdness and stupid speculations as they begin to reckon time in a way that is clearly inconsistent with what the text is saying. What does Peter mean? What Peter means is that God is a self-existent being who is eternal and that God does not measure time the way human beings measure time. He's not subject to time. Neither is he ruined by time or diminished by time. We measure time by the revolution of our planet on its axis, the amount of time it takes for the planet to turn on its axis as it continues its orbital journey around the sun. We measure time by seconds and hours and days and weeks and months and years. As a matter of fact, all you have to do is open up a dictionary like Webster's Dictionary. Then you can find these definitions, time, the measured or measurable period during which an action or a process or a condition exists or continues to exist, such as duration, B, a non-partial non continuum that is measured in terms of events which exceed one another from past through present to future. But God doesn't 
exists in time so much as in reality. And that that's not to say that 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 somehow time is not real or that the past is not real or the present or the future in his book, Starlight and Time, solving the puzzle of distant starlight in a young universe. Dr. Russell Humphreys offers some interesting observations. I had the opportunity to have him on my radio program several times. And Dr. Humphreys has an earned Ph.D. He is a former atheist and evolutionist who is also a research physicist at Los Alamos National Lab. He starts with a series of assumptions in his book. Number one, that the earth is near the center of the universe. Number two, that the universe is not infinite, but it is limited in its size. And number three, that the universe has been stretched out. That's what the Bible says. As a matter of fact, modern cosmologists more and more are adopting what they're calling an inflationary model in order to try to explain the physics of the universe as we understand it in the here and the now. The surprising result was the discovery that time moved in extreme fast forward for distant galaxies during the formation of the universe. It's a scientific fact that we live in a universe where time moves at different rates depending on your location. Dr. Humphreys points out that this has been called the time dilation effect. And it would have been magnified tremendously as the universe was originally expanding. And during this expansion, only days were passing near the center, while billions of years perhaps were passing in distant heavens or at the outskirts of the universe. This allowed light from distant galaxies time to reach the younger Earth. The heavens look quite old, even though very little time has passed here on the Earth. And again, you can find this in a closer look at the evidence. Now, the point that Peter is making is not that this is some hidden key to chart our course in order to explain the end of the world. Rather, the point that Peter is making is not to be discouraged by the passage of time. Since God is eternal and since God can summon all of time into his presence. The point of Peter's passage is to assault human impatience. As a matter of fact, the word day appears 2,182 times in the Bible. And most often, it's used in the regular way. When it's attached to a number, it almost invariably means a regular day. Most often, it means, like I said, the time necessary for the earth to rotate on its axis. But here becomes the real point for you. Grace precedes judgment. Every second that Jesus delays his coming is one more second that the sinner can repent of his or her sin. A day will come when man's rebellion will reach its zenith and man's wickedness will come to full and final fruition. And God has appointed a day of judgment. In the 80s, Charlie Peacock used to sing a song. Time is a gift of love and grace. Without time, there'd be no time to change. The way Peter is addressing the critic is to ask and answer the question, 
guess what? There's just enough time for you to change your mind. There's just enough time to go in a different direction. And so as we see God looking at time, we see something else. How God sees human beings in verse 9. Look again in verse 9 where it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. A young pastor took an assignment at a rural church where it was mostly farms. And he went out to visit and he spoke to one of the old farmers. And basically the pastor said, do you belong to the Christian family? And the farmer said, no, the Christians live two farms down. The pastor says, no, no, no. I mean, are you lost? And the farmer said, I've lived here for 30 years. No, I'm not lost. I pretty much know my way around. No, no, the minister says, I mean, are, are you ready for judgment day? And the farmer said, when is it? And the minister said, it could be today. It could be tomorrow. Well, the, said the farmer, when you find out for sure, let me know, because I think my wife will want to go both days. Then it becomes frustrating. How do you talk about this? The reason Peter offers the skeptic and the scoffer is God's gracious heart. Think for just a moment. The scoffer, the critic, are in effect mocking God's mercy, laughing at God's long-suffering. Peter reminds us that this isn't some man-made idea, but this is God's promise. Look at the text again. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. This isn't Gino's promise. This isn't even Peter's promise. This isn't Paul's promise. These are the last words spoken in the last book of the Bible. If you have a Bible, turn all the way to the book of Revelation. Go to the very last page, the last chapter in chapter 22 and verse 20. And you'll notice if you have a red letter Bible... John writes, he says, he who testifies to these things says, and this is Jesus speaking. Surely. I am coming quickly. Those are the last words out of the Savior's mouth. Make no mistake about it. I'm coming. Quickly. John writes, amen. Even so. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. When it says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, the word slack means God isn't in the business of being late or tardy. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer out loud. Are you one of those people who come early? Or who come on time, or you enjoy being fashionably late. The point that Peter is making is that Jesus is not in the business of being fashionably late. God is not in the business of being late or tardy. Now, again, remember, 
It's his promise. But Peter also reveals his patience. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering. The word is macro through may I. Many of you know that word macro as a as a prefix. We think of macro versus micro. Macro means very, very long. Micro means very, very short. And so when the ancient people would combine the word macro with the word to may I, it meant long in dealing with desire, patient with emotion. As a matter of fact, the word long-suffering means extremely and extraordinarily patient when the unbeliever or the immature believer calls the tardiness of God. Peter calls patience. The delay isn't so much measured in months or years or centuries. The delay is measured in the plan of God and the patience of God and the perspective of God. And I need to tell you why. In case you didn't know. God nurses a hatred of sin. We sometimes forget it is almost incomprehensible for us as sinners to begin to comprehend how in his righteousness and his holiness, how deeply offended he is by sin. People despise God's word. They reject God's love. They ridicule God's sacrifice. Human beings live in a constant state of rebellion and self-worship and self-will, living in disobedience and drunkenness and deceit and covetousness and pride and mockery and hypocrisy and blasphemy and teaching false doctrine and prayerlessness. You might wonder, oh, how come you threw in prayerlessness? Just in case you thought you weren't on the list. We live in a sin-soaked and saturated universe. Sin brought judgment on Satan according to Revelation chapter 12 verse 7. Sin will doom him to hell forever according to Matthew 25:41. It brought physical death to humanity according to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and Psalm 90 verse 10 and spiritual death according to Genesis chapter 1, 2 and 3 and Matthew chapter 7 verse 23 the Bible says that the soul that sins it shall surely die. Sin has brought disorder and pain to nature. It serves as an object lesson for angels. It caused God to end his rest after creation and begin the work of redemption immediately. Sin causes the believer the loss of light, the loss of joy, the loss of righteousness, the loss of love, the loss of fellowship, the loss of confidence, and possibly the loss of health and even the loss of physical life. Enter the patience of God. Enter the patience of God as He looks inside of your mind, as He peers inside of your heart, 
as he sees the most dreadful sin and wickedness. And he waits. And he waits. And he withholds his judgment. He sees children corrupted by vile and wicked people. And he waits. He withholds his unlimited power to punish and judge and reject. And patiently, specifically, he makes a way out for you. He presents the gospel to you. He provides a Savior for you. And the Savior will wash you and the Savior will cleanse you. And the Savior will make your sin go away. The Savior provides hope. And think about this for just a moment. The only hope for the redemption of any soul rests in the patience, the long suffering and the self-control of God. He was patient with you and with me. And look what the text says, because it reveals the heart of God, not willing that any should perish. The measure of God's restraint indicates the measure of the fearful doom that awaits the person who rejects God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and the hope that is found in Christ The judgment that's been set aside for the sinner because God's righteousness and pure anger burns. And then it glows against sin. And it would be so easy for God to smite and to punish and judge. But he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. But mostly he's waiting for you. Why? Because it was never, ever, ever his intention that you should perish. That's why he's waiting. That's why the delay. When the mocker and the skeptic and the skeptic looks you and says, 2,000 years ago, he promised he would return. Where is he? And why hasn't he come? You can, with a smile on your face and glow in your eye, you can say, he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you. Can you imagine... The Lord God himself has put eternity on hold just for you. It's because of his grace and his compassion and his mercy. God's love allows him to steer clear of the inconceivable horror that waits for the person who says, I don't want God and I don't want Jesus and I don't even believe this even for a minute. Some have suggested that this verse teaches universalism or or universal salvation. How can you get that out of the text? 
Here, willing refers to God's desire and God's plan that none should perish. The prophet Ezekiel wrote, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God, and not rather that they should turn from their ways and live? God isn't in heaven waiting for the next sinner to be plunged into a Christless hell. That's not what he's doing. He's waiting. 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 God's patience allowed Saul to repent. But Nero wouldn't repent. He continued in his, in his wickedness until he came to a place of emptiness and darkness and self-destruction. But God is willing to save all men. God allows the offense to continue. Because the torment that awaits the unrepentant stokes the engines of grace and gives you just one more moment. But I need to tell you something. God won't save a single soul against their will. God will not save a single Soul against their will. This is an invitation of love. This is an expression of mercy and generosity. And so he waits. And he waits. And he waits. But God's holiness and God's justice demands judgment. I was watching a television special about Greenland and Iceland and some of these countries where there are massive glaciers that control much of the surface of the land area. And you probably know that a glacier moves slowly, so slowly that sometimes it doesn't even appear to move at all. It could take a glacier a thousand years to move from here to there. And it could take another thousand years to move from here to there. And you don't see it, but it's moving. And you may not see it, but the age of grace is moving slowly, ever so slowly to a moment of judgment. The glacier moves slowly, but it does move. Hell is real. And it's not God's desire that a single soul go to that place of torment. Love and grace, love and grace permeate God's nature. Isaiah speaks of judgment as God's strange work. That's not his first choice. It's not even his second choice or his third choice. God's first and second and third choice is for you to love you, to have you, to forgive you. That's why the text says not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to 
repentance. And here repentance means to change. It's a word that means to change your mind, to stop. It, it, it carries with it the idea to stop in your tracks, to stop what you're doing and to go in a different direction. And here Peter means to turn from sin and unbelief. And, and repentance in the Bible is always two turns. It's not just simply a stopping and a turning and a walking away from sin, but it's making a beeline into the shepherd's arms. It means making a way back to Jesus, to know him and to love him and to embrace Jesus, Repentance is way more than sorrow. It doesn't mean just simply being sorry because you've been involved in sin or that, that you've been involved in the past in sin or that you're deeply involved in sin. Herod was sorry that he made the deal with his dancing daughter-in-law when he said, I'll give you whatever you want. And she said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And the Bible says he was sorry. And then he killed the Baptist. The Bible says that Judas, taking the blood money that he used to betray Jesus, realizing the wicked, stupid, awful thing that he has done, went back to the temple and attempted to give the blood money back to the priests. But they refused to take it. And the Bible says he was sorry. And then he went and he killed himself. Sorrow that leads to someone else's death, sorrow that leads to self-destruction is not what Peter has in mind. And so it's way more than sorrow, although it might include sorrow. When Jesus in Luke chapter 13 was addressing this issue of Pilate executing a bunch of Galileans and then another bunch of Galileans who had a tower fall on top of them during a feast of one of the celebration feasts said, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There were people yesterday who were driving just like you drive. They got on the same road that you drive. They went in the same direction that you went. And some of them found themselves in a peculiar circumstance where the ice and the snow caused them to slide and to crash and then they died. And you might ask the question, well, why are they dead and, and, and why are you alive? Paul, in speaking to the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill, said in Acts 17, 30, and the times of this ignorance God winked at or overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Peter, after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, told the crowds, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. In each generation, you're given the exact amount of time necessary 
to change your mind. If Jesus is the way, then why would you waste your time traveling some other way? But the point that Peter is making is that the great amnesty will not last forever. And so we see how God observes the end. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Peter points out that God's mercy and God's long suffering and God's patience are balanced by a perfect sense of justice. And a perfect sense of righteousness. Judgment and justice may be delayed. But judgment and justice will not be denied. And so now Peter reminds the reader of the certainty of Christ's coming. And then the character of that coming. He says the Lord will come. That's the certainty. The mocker, the scoffer, the skeptic, the unbeliever, the agnostic. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. No, he he will come. How will he come? The Lord will come as a thief. Peter uses the same terminology and the same language that he was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Both character and certainty include then consequences. The heavens, the elements, the earth will melt with heat. And when Peter uses the term elements, he's not talking about the periodic table that you find in your chemistry class where you have the hydrogen atom first. He's not just simply talking about a periodic table of elements in this particular context as Peter was writing for him. The elements meant the sum and the substance of all that makes up our universe. It primarily referred to the heavenly bodies, the celestial things that you saw in the sky, the sun and the moon and the stars. That the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and everything in it is made of constituent elements. And he says that they will melt with heat. That judgment is coming and that the judgment is total, irrevocable, overwhelming. And Peter pinpoints the time of it. As a thief in the night, our world and our universe are not immutable or incorrigible. Both are subject to change. Both will one day cease to exist. And so Peter basically refers to the final moment as broadly and generally the day of the Lord. Broadly, the day of the Lord, typically in the New Testament, refers to the day of Christ's second coming and his judgment on the planet Earth. And so he repeats the word in, of Matthew twenty four forty two. Remember, Jesus said, watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, 
that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour that you do not expect because it is absent a specific time. The Christian is called to live in a constant state of expectation. It's totally okay for you to wake up every single morning and go, is today the day? Is this the day? Is this the day that my beloved will come? The day of the Lord is sudden, unannounced, catastrophic. Will you be ready? And I'm going to suggest something to you. That the preparation takes place in the present tense, always and every moment, ready to greet your maker. If through, through some supernatural ability, you had the ability to know that you only had three days left on the planet Earth. How would you put your heart in order and your life in order? What if those three days became two days? And what if those two days became one day? And what if that one day became the moment that you're looking out the windshield of a car and you realize, chances are I'm not going to survive this. Are you ready? By the way, the expression with a great noise is one word in the Greek language. It's it's poetic. Some words in some languages, the way that you say the word indicates the meaning of the word. We have a word like that in, in, in English. The word is whoosh. It's a word that describes its own meaning. A.T. Robertson says that it means the whizzing sound of rapid motion through the air like the flight of a bird or the sound of thunder or the sound of what things sound like when they're burning in an intense fire. Have you ever heard the flapping of the wings of a bird or the, 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 the sound of a building getting ready to collapse? That's what the text says. It will be burned up. The NIV has, it will be laid bare. There may be different readings, but the net effect is the same. It will be stripped away. It will be exposed. And only two things will remain. The Lord God. And everything that the Lord God has ordered to remain. And since Peter draws attention to the fact that this world is temporary, even though it seems permanent, it seems fixed, it seems certain the invitation is extended. If ever there was a time to have a fire sale, it might be right now. Things 
variably fall into two categories. I know what you're thinking, Italian people and people who wish they were. But that's not the two categories, even though it seems like those are always should be the two categories. The things are the two categories are the things that last and the things that don't. A woman said, I'm afraid that God will never accept me. And she was in deep distress, and the reply that she heard was shocking and unexpected. He never will, the visitor said. And there was this blank look of shock and astonishment on her face. He never will, repeated the visitor, but he's accepted Christ. And by faith, we can say he has made us accepted in the Beloved. You won't be accepted by God. That ship is already launched. People are accepted by God in Christ for one reason and one reason only. Because Jesus is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. Jesus and the judgment of Jesus on the cross of Calvary takes that burning, white, hot anger of God and cools it to a place not only of refreshment, but of forgiveness and hope and love and reconciliation. No wonder Charlie Peacock said, time is a gift of love and grace without time. There'd be no time to change. He writes, time to be tried and time to be humbled and broken. Time to hear the word of love spoken. He says, I see the mission up ahead of me. And I tremble as one shaken. But if I have the eyes of faith, the eyes to see, I will leave the outcome in the hands of the one who called me. And over and over I must learn and relearn. That whether I decrease or whether I increase, that's not my concern. Deliver me from strategy and from endless clever thinking. Set my sights upon the shore. Keep this boat from sinking down. Let me taste of a fresh wind of reason and stir the gift within. For I am not a boat left to drift out to sea because I remain in you. And you remain in me. There's just enough time left. For you to abandon your sin. And turn to your Savior. And love Him. And walk with Him. And be with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, you've given us just the right amount of time necessary to hear hope alive, to hear a message that will create within us, that will stir within us the opportunity to experience forgiveness and and hope and love. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person 
where the emptiness and the acceptance or the non-acceptance is welling up inside of them like a dark, endless void. Lord, I pray that you'd fill their heart. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you would extend the invitation that only the Spirit of God can extend. That if we'll turn from our sin and our unbelief and receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, if we will in humility and dependence trust Jesus alone for salvation alone, then we're going to be fine. And Heavenly Father, I know that it is not simply a set of rules and regulations or even some body of information, but rather it is the person of Jesus, His love, His life, His death, His resurrection that solidly and completely places us in a position where we have eternity. No wonder the Bible says this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Lord, for the person who longs for, desires eternal life, Lord, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer in their heart. Lord, I want to turn from the darkness and wickedness that's inside of me. Thank you for your patience and your long suffering. Thank you that you've come to a place where I can receive Christ as my Savior, that I can experience love and forgiveness and hope, and that I get to spend eternity with you. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.